Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Right, well, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for all coming around here and uh, I hope I can keep you entertained if not informed. Uh, and this is, in a sense, a historical talk. Now, I am actually a historian by training, uh, rather than an economist, believe it or not. Uh, but it's a historical talk which I believe is highly relevant, because the story I'm about to tell uh, and the kind of myths I'm about to dispel are, I think, going to be highly relevant in the immediate and medium-term future, for reasons which I'll come on to at the end of this. So, um, first of all, uh, the idea which I'm going to start off with, is one which is actually quite controversial amongst historians, but pretty much taken for granted amongst uh, political commentators, journalists, politicians, and that is that there was a post-war consensus uh, between roughly 1945 and 1979. Uh, and the idea is that you have this consensus of policy uh, between the two major parties throughout this post-war period up until the time when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister in 79. Uh, and the end of that post-war consensus is celebrated by some, decried by others, but very few people disagree uh, in those circles with the idea that there was one. Uh, now, a couple of things to add to that. Um, on the right, uh, there's the key idea, which we can trace back ultimately to Sir Keith Joseph, that what happened in that post-war period was that the Conservative Party basically uh, were a bunch of wussies. Uh, they kept on conceding too much to the Labour Party. They would let the Labour Party do something and then they wouldn't reverse it. And the idea is that therefore there was a ratchet effect in which the Labour Party would push politics significantly to the left, there'd be a big shift in the direction of state control of the economy and things of that sort. Then the Conservatives would come into power and they wouldn't reverse any, any of this or very little of it. That's the kind of argument. And so the argument is that therefore basically during this period uh, it's the left that is setting the agenda. Now that's actually rather strange because, of course, following their landslide victory in 45, the Labour Party lost their majority in 50 and then actually lost uh, power completely in 51, and the Conservatives were then in power for 13 years. Uh, and it took a combination of a whole series of spectacular scandals and internal party fallouts for them to lose the election in 64, which they only lost by an incredibly narrow margin, uh, mainly actually because they lost two supposedly safe seats in Glasgow, interestingly. Uh, Cathcart and Pollock. Uh, so, but that's a very key idea, and it's a key part of the kind of self-image, if you like, of the post-Thatcher Conservative Party, that that was what she was reacting against. Um, now, the idea of a consensus is that, as it says here, that there's a broad policy agreement between the two parties. In other words, that to quote uh, George Wallace, there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between them. Uh, that the two parties were so alike, agreed on so much, that really the difference between them was only one of emphasis. That's what's meant by a consensus. It's not a literal consensus, which means unanimity. But the idea is that there was so much agreement uh, that you had what is commonly called butskalism, uh, a kind of very common fiscal policy named after the two uh, lead chancellors of the early 50s, uh, Hugh Gateskill from the Labour side, Rab Butler from the Tory side. Not all historians agree with this, for example, though. Uh, a lot of historians 
starting off with the man I mentioned there, Ben Pimlot, have actually been very critical of this. Uh, Pimlot wrote a book about the myth of the post-war consensus back in the uh, late 1970s, uh, and which he then developed in a series of articles. And uh, since then, there's been quite a debate. And I think it's fair to say that amongst historians, uh, the whole idea of whether or not there was a post-war con consensus is contested. Now, why is that? Well, um, what you actually find when you look at the history is that there was very clear party differentiation. It is not the case if you look at things like party manifestos, speeches by MPs, uh, party campaigns, that the two parties agreed a lot. In fact, there's an extremely clear and sharp ideological difference between the two. The Conservative Party in the 1950s and the Labour Party in the 1950s are actually uh, arguing for quite radically and dramatically different visions of what the good society would be like, uh, and quite different ideas of what British society should be like. In fact, you could make a very strong case, as Pimlot does, for saying that actually what you have in the 50s in particular is not party convergence, but polarisation. And that's one of the reasons why party loyalty amongst the electorate was so strong during that period. Because this is the period, remember, when the two big parties are getting 90% plus of the vote. Uh, and most voters are extremely loyal to one side or the other. Uh, and the result is that, therefore, elections are decided by a very small group of swing voters, only about 4 to 5% of the electorate. Uh, in most parts of the country, you know, basically once a Conservative or Labour voter, always a voter of that kind. And that reflects a couple of things. One of them is the way in which the two big parties at that time were major, major civil society institutions. Uh, the Labour Party, of course, had the trades union movement, it had a network of Labour clubs, it had a whole network of institutions like the WEA, but the Conservative Party also had several million members in the 1950s. There was a huge network of Conservative associations, there were things like the Primrose League, the Young Conservatives were famously the world's largest dating agency at that time, and Marriage Arrangement Bureau. Uh, so the two parties were deeply rooted in British civil society in a way that they're not now. Uh, but also, as I say, there was strong ideological division. Uh, and ordinary Labour voters and Conservative voters, if you look at uh, mass observation surveys or opinion surveys from that time, clearly identify themselves and the party they support with a particular set of social, moral and economic values. So the idea that there is this kind of mushy consensus is actually not true. It's projecting the late 1960s probably back onto the 50s when it wasn't the case. Uh, also, as we'll see, there was very strong resistance to the many of the policies of the Attlee government. Uh, the idea that the Conservative Party simply rolled over and accepted all the things that the Labour government did between 45 and 51 is simply untrue. There were some areas where the, the wartime coalition had already agreed on a, a kind of coherent policy uh, where there wasn't any controversy, the beverage report being the main example of that. But in other areas, the National Health Service, nationalisation, a whole range of other things, there was intense opposition. And this opposition was not only from the Parliamentary Conservative Party. It involved a whole array of grassroots organisations, often associated with or affiliated with the party, uh, but otherwise independent. Uh, we'll see more about that uh, in a moment. Um, and in fact, what I would argue is that if you look not just at Britain, but at the global situation, classic true socialism is defeated between 1946 and 1951-52.
Uh, if you look at the p policy in many countries of the left, up until that period, they are advocating a radical and fundamental move away from capitalism. The Labour Party in Britain is definitely in favour of that. In France and Italy, remember, you have large communist parties which very nearly come to power in the post-war period. Uh, in Germany, the Social Democrats still are officially a Marxist party in the post-war period. They all believe themselves sincerely to be advocating a fundamental systemic break with capitalism, a move to a quite different kind of society. And if you look at the proposals that the Attlee government made, which it was not able to put through, as I'll explain in a moment, you realise that in fact, yes, this is not just words. There was a genuine radical attempt to do this. Even in the United States, the Second New Deal, um, leading up to uh, Pearl Harbor, had seen major efforts by the Roosevelt administration to fundamentally reshape the nature of the American economy. And at the end of the war, following a period during which the, war, the, the wartime economy had been completely planned by the central government, there was a serious argument about whether or not the wage and price controls and other economic controls that had been brought in during the war should be abolished or not. And there was a major campaign at the time in the United States uh, for what was called planned consumption, which meant the idea that the democratic process should decide not only what was being produced, as it had done throughout the war, but what people should consume. Uh, and after a very close debate in Congress, the wartime controls were abolished in 1946. Uh, but uh, it was even then, several years until finally at the end of the Truman administration, uh, the uh, kind of radical att attempt to change the nature of the American economic system was abandoned. And this applies elsewhere. So in, in Germany, for example, it's not until the Bad Godesberg Conference of the Social Democrats at the end of the decade that the left in Germany finally, in the face of repeated electoral defeat, abandons its commitment to Marxism. In the Labour Party, the key turning point is Anthony Crossland and uh, his work in the mid-1950s, in which he basically scraps the kind of traditional Labour socialism of people like Tawney and Attlee and others uh, and instead creates the kind of social democracy that we've been familiar with since, which is basically have a free market economy, but then tax it and use the tax revenues to fund redistributive economic programs, which is not the same thing as what traditional socialism was, because it doesn't any longer uh, suggest that the project is about a complete transformation of the economic system. So I think that, that period then is actually a decisive one. That's the point at which what you might call real 19th century, early 20th century socialism is um, held back and then significantly reversed. And that's the other uh, thing to mention. Uh, there are a number of major shifts uh, and rollbacks of uh, the socialist state and of the planned economy during the 1950s. The idea that the conservative administrations at that time simply basically accepted the uh, inheritance they received from the Labour government and then just tried to run it a bit better is simply false. As we'll see, there is one or maybe two areas where they did accept it. Uh, but in several other areas, they were quite aggressive in pushing it back. So, for example, tax and fiscal policy. 
Um, once Rab Butler had got his feet under the table as Chancellor, following the end of the Korean War in particular, which had put extreme pressure on the British budget, uh, there's a steady programme of reducing taxes uh, and cutting government spending and restraining it. Uh, and this continues right through uh, to the 1960s. There is the famous little local difficulty when uh, Enoch Powell and Peter Thorningcroft resigned from the Treasury team under Harold Macmillan. Uh, little local difficulty was Macmillan's characteristically insouciant description of this, uh, but that was actually more about an argument at the margins. There was a general agreement in the party at the time that the goal of government fiscal policy should try to be uh, to restrict the amount of revenue that was taken by the state. This was combined with something else though, uh, which I'll say more about later on. There's also um, a major rollback of public ownership and planning. The kind of extensive planning controls that the Attlee government had inherited from the wartime coalition and continued Labour direction, for example, are simply swept away and abolished. At the same time also, a number of other controls, notably identity cards, which the Attlee government had kept going after the war uh, and which uh, many people in the Conservative Party also wanted to keep, this was also done away with in the first year of the Churchill administration in 1951. Uh, very importantly, something I'll come on to, the whole program of rationing of food and other essentials, uh, of which had actually been ramped up and made even more extensive between 1945 and 51, this was again swept away. And the point I would make is that the Labour government ran in 1951 on a platform of continuing this program of rationing on the grounds quite correct from their point of view, that it was a major instrument for social equality. Uh, and campaigning against this was a central part of the Conservative's successful campaign in 51. And the Churchill government was true to its word, all of those controls were simply swept away. So there was a major rollback of a whole number uh, of uh, things. Furthermore, crucially, there was a major focus of government policy on promoting and developing private consumption. And this is associated with a term which is commonly misunderstood, the idea of a property-owning democracy. Uh, the term invented by Anthony Eden and used uh, very prominently in the 1955 campaign when he uh, won the majority having taken over from Churchill. And the idea of this was not simply uh, home ownership, as it's often understood to be. It meant a more general focus upon a society in which the ownership of all kinds of goods and services was as widely diffused and spread as possible, uh, with the aim of promoting in the independence of individual households. So, for example, washing machines. You might think that the ownership of washing machines is like just one of those things. It was a big deal back in the 1950s, and it was deliberate government policy to make household ownership of domestic white goods as easy as possible. Now, to give you an idea of what that, how transformative that was, I'm old enough to remember, having grown up in Scotland for a while, uh, that in, uh, you still had what were called municipal laundries, the steamies, as they were called. Uh, amazing places uh, run by ladies who looked as though they'd basically been born in the reign of Queen Victoria and not changed much since then. And the, basically until late 1950s, uh, you were, all of your domestic services, your household services like laundry and so on, were done through collective provision by the local authority. The idea of a property-owning democracy was that by people having their own car, having their own washing machine, having their own household devices, the household become independent. 
uh, it would no longer be part of this kind of collective enterprise. And that was the basis of the moral division between the two parties at the time. It was between collectivism on the one hand and on the other hand, not full-blown individualism, but the idea of homes or households in particular being as independent and self-managing and autonomous as possible. And so there was a major thrust, if you like, to take consumption out of the sphere of the planned economy, but also out of the sphere of the collective economy, uh, and to instead emphasize uh, personal uh, autonomy. Uh, now, what you get, at part of this, as I said, is campaigns. So this is one of the most famous campaigns. Uh, anybody know what this character is called? See, I, I grew up with him. Mr. Cube. Uh, and I remember as late as the 1970s, if you bought a packet of Tate and Lyle sugar, you had this chap on it, Mr. Cube, usually someone holding a shield and with a sword in the other hand. The reason for this is that the, one of the Attlee government's proposals was to nationalise sugar refining and the sugar industry. Uh, this is one a whole range of nationalisation proposals that the Attlee government put forward in the second half of its term. And the company, Tate & Lyle, developed this major campaign against it with Mr Cube as the leading figure. So that's one of the, uh, the posters that they brought out. Here's another one. Um, quite brilliant propaganda, I think you'll agree. Uh, and there's another one. Um, Tate, not state, uh, Mr. Cube says, keep your key to good housekeeping, uh, which is an emphasis on the ideological campaign that I mentioned, the emphasis upon uh, autonomy of households as opposed to being told what to do by the government. Now, I mentioned sugar, but this is only one of a number of examples. The Road Haulage Association, for example, ran a major campaign against the nationalization of that industry by the Attlee government. It was partly put through but the Conservatives reversed it in the 1950s. The Iron and Steel Trades Confederation had a major campaign against iron and steel nationalisation, which was extremely controversial, probably cost the Labour Party their majority in 1950, if you look at the pattern of voting, uh, and which also, again, was partly uh, reversed by the Conservatives. They were unable to sell one or two of the biggest uh, steel firms like Stewart's and Lloyd's because basically they were very heavily debt encumbered. They should probably have been shut down, actually, but um, they, didn't, they didn't do that. Also, the British Insurance Federation, because nationalising the entire insurance industry was another one of the Attlee government's uh, ideas. And this was also associated with uh, a movement um, which is almost entirely forgotten, that the organisation still exists, but is now a very small, and I'm afraid to say, far-right fringe group, the British Housewives League, uh, which was led by this lady here, Dorothy Crisp. Uh, and it was a major pressure group, particularly against rationing. Uh, and she's a very interesting woman, actually, Dorothy Crisp, described by someone who wrote about her as the political figure before Margaret Thatcher, who most closely resembled her. Uh, treated extremely badly by the government, by the way. Uh, her husband was an uh, assistant constable, voluntary constable, and while at work, um, he was shot dead by a burglar. And because he did so not on duty, the government refused to pay her a widow's pension. And she took the government to court and eventually won the case. But in the process, she was bankrupted. Uh, and uh, she remained an undischarged bankrupt for most of the rest of her life. Uh, but uh, here are some of the campaigns. Oh, I like that. I, I love the slogan, as you might say. Um, we, we might be seeing more protests like this. This is a British Housewives League demonstration in Whitehall. 
and here's the same demonstration put on, uh, again, enormously successful. Uh, and a major factor in the Conservatives' electoral success, not only in 1951, but throughout the 1950s. The, if you read, look at Conservative Party propaganda, posters and like from the 50s, one of the constant themes is you don't want to go back to rationing price controls, consumer controls. The other thing they always mention, by the way, is groundnuts. And you might wonder why, why, why groundnuts, which is peanuts, by the way. The reason is because the Atlee government had had a major project to grow peanuts in East Africa, which had been an utter, total catastrophe uh, of state mismanagement. And so the Conservatives were able to make you know, hay with that particular example of uh, you know, state incompetence for about 12 years after the government actually lost power. Uh, this is another guy um, that is worth uh, mentioning. Uh, a chap called Harry Wilcock. Now, he's interesting because he's a liberal, not a conservative. Uh, and it's worth saying that the politics that I'm talking about, although it's the Conservative Party, it's also very much the politics of what was left of the Liberal Party at the time. Harry Wilcock, what he's holding up there is a national identity card. Uh, and he publicly burnt his card uh, in 1951 uh, and refused to carry it. Uh, the British Housewives League, under Dorothy Crisp, was also strongly opposed to this and there was a major demonstration launched by them. Also uh, a major campaign led by a fellow called Sir Ernest Benn, uh, Tony Benn's uncle, amongst other things, who was the great advocate of radical individualism in the Conservative Party in Britain at the time. Uh, and the Conservative government, I think, had they not been subject to that pressure, might well have been tempted to keep identity cards in place. but. They, in fact, repealed them in 51. Now, why does this narrative exist? Because I, what I've argued is that actually it's wrong. There wasn't a consensus in the 1950s. There was a strong ideological debate. It's not the case that the Conservative Party or its civil society allies simply took what the Labour Party was doing lying down. There's actually a very aggressive response and significant pushback and rollback. So where does this narrative come from? Um, one of them is that the nature of the policy posture of the Conservative and, at that time, also Liberal parties is misunderstood. It's thought of as being <coughs> similar to that of the Labour Party, when in fact, as I've said, it's radically different. And that's partly because, although it's a free market policy, it's not the same as the free market policy that emerged during the 1970s, or particularly, really, the 1980s and 1990s. It's a kind of free market policy, for example, that has a much stronger emphasis on families and the household as compared to uh, free-floating individuals, you might say, pejoratively. Um, it's a policy which um, is very much anti-socialist and very strongly pro-free enterprise but which at the same time thinks that there is an act, there's a role for an active government in all of this. But it's important to understand what the role of government is understood as being. It's not understood as being the government spending money or doing things directly itself. It's understood as the government providing the necessary uh, infrastructure, if you will, for uh, private enterprise to do its thing, uh, which does involve things like spending on infrastructure. Uh, that's undoubtedly part of it. But the idea is that uh, Essentially, the government should not be running things. What it should be doing, however, is providing the institutional framework for private action, private uh, action of various kinds to uh, provide the goods uh, and deliver the, the services that people want. Um, so that's, that's the nature of the, the thing. Plus, a couple of other things, and this is where things become uh, relevant to today. As I said, some things were agreed during the wartime coalition. So the 1944 Education Act 
was obviously passed by the wartime coalition. That was a cross-party agreement. Uh, the Town and Country Planning Act was also a wartime agreement. It was a non-controversial measure because pretty much everyone agreed by the end of the 1940s that the pattern of ribbon development, which had grown up in the 1920s and 30s, was no good, basically. And so the Town and Country Planning Act was the solution to that. I think we can now say with the benefit of hindsight that it was the wrong solution. <laughs> But it worked for quite a long time. It worked until the mid-1960s, basically, when we, quite frankly, ran out of building bomb sites, because that's what actually happened, uh, basically. Uh, another thing that was agreed was the beverage report. There was strong opposition to the beverage report during the war, but by the time you get to 1945, both parties had agreed that they were going to put it into place. Uh, so there are some things that had been, if you like, agreed during the wartime coalition. Another one, by the way, was the commitment to full employment. That was a very important macroeconomic policy goal that both parties agreed on the centrality of during the war um, because there was a feeling that you simply couldn't go back to the problem of the distressed areas in the way that you'd had it in the 1930s. Now, there was one, major, there was one major area where a measure by the Attlee government that had been very strongly resisted was accepted, and that was the National Health Service. Um, the National Health Service was extremely controversial and the Conservative Party put up an intense fight against it. That lady I showed you, Dorothy Crisp, uh, she once got a lot of applause at the meeting because she threatened to throw Nye Bevan into the Thames uh, if he put the bill through. Uh, she was a combative little woman, I think it's fair to say. Um, but that was one area where I think the leadership of the party decided that it, it was too late. It was just too difficult to reverse it. One of the reasons why that was true was because of an argument that took place within the government itself, the Attlee government, that is. It's not often realised, but there was a colossal row in the cabinet between, on the one hand, Herbert Morrison, who thought that the government should take over funding health care, but that the hospitals should remain private and, and a mixture of ownership, local authority, charity, private government. Uh, and on the other hand, Nye Bevan and Ellen Wilkinson, who thought that we should have what we ended up with, which is the government should control everything. Uh, and it was a very, very close run thing. And in the end, uh, Attlee broke the tie, so to speak, came down on Bevan's side. Um, previously, both Ernie Bevin and Herbert Morrison had been totally opposed to Bevan's idea. Had Morrison won the day, I think there would have been much more scope for reforming the, the National Health Services set up. But once Bevan had done what he did, which was part of his reason for doing it, of course, he was a smart politician, it, you had something that was very, very difficult to undo, uh, as we've found since. So that was one accepted area. But the really big factor, and this is where I think um, this story becomes quite relevant today, is that there were very significant constraints on public policy at this time. In other words, the Conservative governments in the 1950s, uh, and indeed the Labour governments in the 60s as well, uh, were, had very severely constrained room for manoeuvre in terms of the policies that they followed. And there are two reasons for this. The first is the geopolitics. This is the Cold War, uh, where the European powers had basically become clients of either the United States, not a bad place to be, or the Soviet Union, a really bad place to be. Uh, but the point is that the global situation, uh, the creation of NATO, the Cold War, severely constrains not only foreign and defence policy, but a range of other policies too. Uh, you can't really radically depart from a certain range of economic policies on either side of the Iron Curtain. Now, there are people in Britain who object to this, by the way, on both the imperialist right of the Tory party and the radical left of the Labour party, but they're very much a minority in both cases. 
so that's one major constraint. And linked to that is the monetary regime. The regime of Bretton Woods that was created in 1944 and basically enforced along with GATT by the United States as part of the post-war settlement. What that did was severely constrain the freedom of manoeuvre uh, of uh, subsequent British governments. Now, in order to understand why that is, this is what I'll wrap up with, um, there is in public policy something called the monetary policy trilemma. Uh, what that means is you have three possible policies, um, open markets, a fixed exchange rate, uh, and control of monetary policy. And what the trilemma says is you can have two of those three, but it's theoretically impossible for you to have all three at the same time. Uh, and so in the 19th century, we had fixed exchange rates, the gold standard. Uh, we had open markets, radically open markets, uh, but we had no independent monetary policy because if you did try to run an independent monetary policy, you, you would have, your gold reserves would come under pressure. Uh, so basically, that option was not, not there. In 1931, we abandoned the gold standard, and from 1931 to 45, we had... Um, Open markets qualified because we had what was called imperial preference, commonwealth preference. We had a completely independent and very radical monetary policy, but we no longer had a fixed exchange rate. We had floating exchange rates from 31 to 44, 45, when the Bretton Woods Agreement came into force. Now, in the period I'm talking about here, from 1945 to 1979, you had a fixed exchange rate, uh, which had to be maintained at severe political cost. It was devalued twice the pound in 1948 and in 1967. It was a major event. I can still vividly remember uh, as a child uh, the whole family sitting around this crackly television in South Wales to hear Harold Wilson come on and announce that uh, you know, the pound is going to be devalued, in which he told us the pound in your pocket does not mean devalued, uh, which is a, not a well-chosen turn of phrase, I think it's fair to say. And uh, it, this was a, a big, big constraint on uh, government fiscal policy in particular. Uh, it was combined with an independent and very extensive monetary policy um, because at this time the British government had not just interest rates at its disposal but a whole range of credit controls and other things that it could use. Uh, but that meant you didn't have the third element. So we had exchange controls and no open capital markets. What you also had, and this was a major constraint that no Conservative government could undo, was what was called financial repression. What that means is that you forced private savings into things like government debt at a time when the rate of inflation was higher than the yield on the debt. Uh, so it's a kind of tricky form of tax, basically. Uh, but there was no alternative to doing this because uh, you couldn't follow the kind of uh, free movement of capital which would otherwise have funded a lot of government spending uh, without abandoning Bretton Woods. And you couldn't abandon Bretton Woods because the Americans would have been really, really upset uh, and we couldn't do that. All this, of course, changes in 1971. And since 1971, 73, we've been in a different world. Uh, we've been in a world of open markets uh, and free monetary policy, but no fixed exchange rate, because we've had a floating exchange rate since 1973. So that's the other part of it. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant, I think, because I think we are moving into a world where, once again, British governments are going to be operating under quite severe policy constraints. Um, I, I don't think that the... Uh, I think the war in Ukraine, who knows how long that will go on for, but what I think has happened is that the international order, uh, which was created and built up after World War II, and then 
transformed and amended in the 1970s, uh, which has been under strain for some time, uh, is now basically on its last legs. If indeed it hasn't, we won't retrospectively think it's collapsed. And I think we are moving quite clearly into an era of systemic competition uh, between the West on the one hand and China and allied powers, notably Russia, which is an incredible failure of uh, geopolitical strategy, by the way. Uh, to get the Russians allied with China. But anyway, that's another issue um, on the other side. And I think under those kind of conditions, once again, it's going to become quite interesting uh, how the constraints play out in British government policy. Uh, and it'll be an interesting policy choice as to which two of that monetary policy trilemma we now go with. Uh, and uh, because that has big impact and uh, effects upon uh, what you can do domestically, uh, much more than you might imagine. And that partly explains the appearance of a consensus. Governments since 73 have had a lot more room for manoeuvre in some ways because they were not constrained by the Bretton Woods system. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why the Conservatives, although they did, as I say, push a lot back, there were other things they'd have liked to have done, but they couldn't do it because they had the monetary system they were embedded in at the time. So at that point, I'll stop uh, and see if you've got any questions for me. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the IA podcast on Podbean, Spotify or Apple. We also upload our podcast on our YouTube channel, IA London. If you want to help contribute to the IA's digital output, please support us on Patreon, where you can benefit from exclusive membership perks whilst helping us continue to produce stimulating educational output. To become an online patron, click the link in the show notes.